Blog Talk Radio. From Live in the Balance, the nonprofit organization committed to advocating on behalf of behaviorally challenging kids and their caregivers, this is Dr. Ross Green. Welcome to Collaborative Problem Solving at School. I'm delighted that you were able to join in. This program airs live each Monday at 3.30 p.m. Eastern Time during the school year. We explore a variety of topics aimed at helping you better understand and help challenging students and implement the collaborative problem-solving approach in your classroom and your school. If you have a question or comment, call 646-727-2691. If you call in, you'll be muted until I bring you on the air. And now, let's talk about challenging kids and how we can help them. Hello there and welcome to today's program. We're going to be together for 45 minutes here to talk about implementing collaborative problem solving at school so that we can do a better job of helping the behaviorally challenging kids in our school buildings. And of course, one of the ways in which we do that, well, first of all, one of the reasons that we do that is because there are still way too many behaviorally challenging kids falling through the cracks. Uh, Too many parents being blamed for the challenging behavior of their kids at school. Too many kids still being helped, with that word in quotes, with people thinking that punitive intervention, rewarding, punitive would be punishing, or giving them incentives, rewarding them, is the kind of help that they need. When in fact, behaviorally challenging kids are lacking crucial cognitive skills, flexibility, adaptability, frustration tolerance, problem solving. And those lagging skills are getting in their way in highly specific conditions called unsolved problems. And the way to help them is to engage them in a proactive and collaborative process of problem solving so that the problems get solved, the skills they're lacking get taught, and the behavioral challenges they exhibit in response to those unsolved problems dissipate. That's school discipline, the collaborative problem-solving way. That's helping behaviorally challenging students, the collaborative problem-solving way, and that's what this program is about. Now, how do we do that on this program? Well, some weeks we do it with the educators panel. Some weeks, that's the first uh, Monday of every month. Some weeks we do it by me answering questions from callers or from people who've emailed in, and we've got a bunch of those stacked up, but not today. And some weeks we do it by helping the staff at any town high school implement collaborative problem-solving in their building. And that's what we're going to do today and next week. So I'm delighted to bring onto the air our good friends at Anytown High School. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Green. How are you all today? Good. Great. Good. It's a beautiful fall, sunny fall day here in the Northeast, hopefully uh, where you are too. We're not giving away your location. Um, but I know that you have some things to talk about today that um, 
relate to your efforts to implement collaborative problem solving in your building, so no time like the present. What's going on at Anytown High School today? I'm going to start by saying that we talked last time about Carlos, and I did meet with the team of teachers that worked with Carlos, and we completed the ALSEP for him. I'm just wondering what I do with this information now and what's the next step. Well, let's start by thinking about the information that you gathered. Because um, here's what's supposed to happen when people use the ALSEP as a discussion guide. And um, just for the sake of clarity, the best way to use the ALSEP is to have every person in the meeting with a blank copy in front of them. Uh, and we're talking about these students' lagging skills, and when we hit upon a skill that a student is lacking, especially if we're using the revised ALSIP that people can find in the paperwork section on the Lives in the Balance website, we are um, moving over to examples of that lagging skill, and those, of course, are called unsolved problems. So after we're through having our discussion using the ALSIP, a few important things should happen. First of all, light bulbs should go on. Aha moments wow moments, as I call them, should occur, where people discover that this student is indeed lacking many skills, that this student indeed has many unsolved problems, and once again, unsolved problems are those specific conditions in which challenging episodes are occurring. So the goal of the, of the lagging skill section is for people to recognize my goodness, there's lots of things we could be saying about this kid, but the most accurate, compassionate, productive thing we could know about him is that he's lacking crucial skills and that we know what those skills are. And then another very productive thing to come out of the meeting is that we now have identified the very specific conditions, once again, those are called unsolved problems, in which challenging episodes have occurred. So the next step, if you got that far, is to think about well, now, we can't solve all those problems at once. We can only solve two or three of them at a time. And at that point, the Plan B flowchart comes into play because that's where we're going to list the two or three unsolved problems that we've decided we are working on right now, our high priorities. And we're designating who it is that's going to be doing Plan B with the student on those unsolved problems. And often that means a different staff member for each unsolved problems. Now, before we go on, I should mention, how do we prioritize? I usually prioritize with safety. So if an unsolved problem is setting in motion safety issues, that would be a high priority. Uh, if there aren't any safety issues, and I don't recall you telling us about any safety issues with Carlos, so we might move on to the next uh, step in the, well, I hate to call it an algorithm, but maybe it is. Um, and that would be to prioritize based on the frequency by which a particular unsolved problem sets in motion challenging episodes. Um, and there's a frequency rating on the revised ALSEP that might help along those lines. So maybe the best thing to do might be for you to tell us and the people, me and the people who are listening to the program, uh, what lagging skills jump out at you for Carlos. Don't Don't go through all of them, but maybe pick three or four that, you, you all said, yeah, 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 big big time, that one. 
and the unsolved problems that you're thinking you might want to prioritize, or if you need help prioritizing, throw them all at us, and maybe we can practice prioritizing. As you know, on this program, we don't plan much with any town high school. We take it as it comes because this is the real McCoy. Where are you at in that process, I guess, is the question. I'm at the point where I'm, I'm really trying to figure out like what the unsolved problems are because for each person that deals with this child, it's different. And what is the priority would probably the you know be the category where they have chosen always. You yeah, know, sure. if it's happening at all times or often. Is that well, often often works. Um, lay some of these unsolved. Uh, so you're having trouble identifying unsolved problems. Well, the unsolved problems that jump out for Carlos are talking at inappropriate times. Okay. Getting started on or completing class assignments. Okay. The, the that would be the two biggest ones for him. All right. So now our goal, because the unsolved problems that we identify and the degree to which we're specific about them has a great deal to do with um, how the empathy step is going to sound when we get to doing plan B. So talking at inappropriate times and having difficulty completing various assignments, yes? Yes, yes getting started on and completing. Now, here's the interesting thing. These days, I mean, I, I get the picture, but I don't really get the whole picture. And so one of the things I'm wondering is whether we could make those unsolved problems even more specific. <clears throat> Are there specific classes in which Carlos is, or specific situations in which Carlos is likely to talk out of turn? Well, one of the classes who scored him as always is someone who's here with us in the meeting, so maybe you can share. I have um, Carlos for math at the end of the day, um, after lunch, and as far as the talking goes, it is <clears throat> consistent talking to anybody near him, that will listen to him, whether it's the teacher or another student, and then you can redirect him, you can refocus him, and then as soon as you turn, he starts talking again. Um, and so that also um, will affect him getting started on work because he's still talking. And what class is that? Math. Math, okay. So if I wanted to make that more specific, I would at least add math to the unsolved problem. These days, and this is a little bit more technical, and here's why we might want to add math to that unsolved problem, recognizing, of course, that Carlos may be having trouble talking at the right time for several classes. The problem is that when we get to the empathy step of Plan B and we say to Carlos, I've noticed that if we have something relatively vague. I've noticed that often you're talking out of turn in class. What's up? There's some decent chance, and this is more technical. I know we have other things we want to turn our attention to today, but there's an excellent chance Carlos is going to say, I don't know. 
And the reason he might say, I don't know, is because we haven't really pinpointed a specific class in which that's occurring. And so what we've the demand that we've placed upon Carlos is to sort through in his brain all of the classes that he has at any town high school, all of the ones in which he might be talking out of turn and might not be out of talking out of turn. For a lot of students, we've just um, we've just blown them out of the water with the amount of thinking they need to do, and then they tell us that they're having trouble thinking by saying, "I don't know." So I'm wondering if we could, at the very least, be more specific about the class, the specific class we'd like to talk with them about. Here's here's the good part. If we're talking with them about a specific class, then we get a decent sense about why he's talking out of turn in that class and what his concern or perspective is on that problem. Then we can then say, um, do you think that that's a big part of why you might also be speaking out of turn in XYZ class? So my general inclination is to start narrow and be more specific than we might be inclined to be because we can always broaden it out. If we start too broad, sometimes the empathy step goes nowhere because we started too broad and the student wasn't able to connect our inquiry with a specific condition in which he's having the trouble. Now let me get even more technical. These days, I'm usually recommending that people, as the unsolved problem, not list a specific behavior for example, talking out of turn, but instead be specific about the expectation that the student is having difficulty meeting. So if I was to ask you, what difficulty are you describing here that Carlos is having trouble meeting, how might we reword that? Carlos is having difficulty Staying quiet while instruction is going on. I think that's even better. And then what makes it easier is we simply need to add the word difficulty in front of that, and we've got ourselves an unsolved problem. Some students, and this is once again related to what's going to happen when we get to the empathy step, some students, when they are in the empathy step of Plan B, when they hear their behavior being thrown at them, and, and talking out of turn would be a relatively mild one, some students won't talk because it feels like they're in trouble, or sometimes talking with a student about their behavior makes them less inclined to talk. In which case, I'm finding that I'm trying to be increasingly neutral in the empathy step, making it as neutral as possible by simply stating the unmet expectation that the student is having, the expectation the student is having trouble meeting and putting the word difficulty in front of it. But all of that is technical. It sounds like you've figured out what unsolved problems you'd like to begin working on with Carlos. Difficulty completing work, and once again, that's one on which I'd want to be even more specific with the specific assignment or the specific class in which he's having trouble meet, completing work. And... Um, difficulty um, talking at appropriate times during instruction, which would be the second unsolved problem. Tell me what further guidance you need, because it feels to me like where we're at, if you've decided that those are your two priorities, is that you're ready to designate people to be doing Plan B with Carlos on those unsolved problems. And, of course, the whole reason that we are identifying these unsolved problems ahead of time is so that the whole Plan B process, or as much of it as possible, 
can be proactive. So tell me where you're at, especially since you've identified the unsolved problems, which is fantastic. What's, um, what are you wondering about in terms of what you might want to be doing next? I'd just like to note that I just am noticing that the difficulty getting started is across the board in all the classes. Talking might, go ahead, sorry. Talking is in three out of the four classes. And it seems that he has less problems in the arts like English and social studies, a little less than math and science. Can I ask you a question? The three that he's exhibiting the consistent talking, are is there any any um correlation with time? Are those like throughout the day? Are they morning, afternoon, all in the afternoon? Well, the or first period class is the one that does not have the problem so much with the talking, so that's his first period. Okay. And I'm not sure on the others. I know one of them is in the afternoon. Is it associated with subject, I suppose, would be my next question, or type of task rather than time of day? Possible. So here's the good news. I don't know that we have to. I personally would treat each class in which those are difficulties for him as separate unsolved problems. find that when we go too global, we don't get as far. Plus, here's the other thing. Even if Carlos is able to sort through why he's having difficulty getting started, sort, even if he's able to pin down a class in which that's occurring, the reasons he's having difficulty getting started in each of the different classes in which he's having difficulty getting started might be different, in which case he may not be able to answer our <coughs> inquiry because he's now confused about all of the different reasons that he may be having difficulty getting started. So I would treat each class in which he's having trouble getting started as a separate unsolved problem, and I would start with one of them, and then I would broaden it out once I got him talking about one of the classes in which he was having trouble getting started. Does that make sense? Yes. I just find that's a much more effective way to get a kid talking than trying to talk with him globally about all of the classes in which he's having trouble getting started. I find that this often causes an I don't know in the empathy step unnecessarily. Um, I'd rather start specific and then broaden it out to the other unsolved problems, the other classes in which he's having trouble getting started, if I'm making some headway identifying the reasons he's having getting trouble getting started in one particular class. Dr. Green, this is Zena, and I have just sort of a side question. If they're noticing this repeated behavior of having difficulty getting started and some talkativeness in every class, and you're saying to treat every class as sort of its own individual problem, do you think there would be any merit in possibly when you first sit down to talk to the kids, you know, just sort of do a little relationship building and then ask them, you know, are there classes that you have trouble in, and then kind of, oh, yeah, you know, I hate science, I haven't, I don't really like science, I never do well there, and then say, well, we know, like, I noticed that sometimes it's difficult for you to start your work in science. Like, to try to pick the one that the kid is willing to talk about and say that they have a problem with? Do you think there would be any um, merit to that? 
I suppose that's one way to go at it. The, the problem with that, of course, is if you start general and say, um, you having trouble in any of your classes? And he says, no. Then you're right back where you started. Um, I've noticed that a lot of times I might perceive a student as having a problem and they really have a bigger issue with another thing that they're more willing to talk about, like maybe the same issue but in math class and not science or English and not social studies. Well, my inclination is still to start with a specific class, and here's the worst-case scenario. Worst-case scenario, he says, um, well, you think my troubles in science are big. That's nothing compared to math, in which case I'd probably feel free to move on to math by simply saying, really, tell me about math. Tell me about difficulty getting started in math, then we can go back to science. But I, I can't say that there's any hard and fast rule here. Um, my inclination is to start specific and over the course of the empathy step. You know, once the empathy step gets started, it's an adventure. It's a journey. You really have no idea where it's going. Um, I just find that it's better to start with a specific unsolved problem, in this case a specific class in which he's having trouble getting started, just to get the ball rolling so that he has a sense about what it is that you're even asking about. Sometimes if we start too global, the kid has no idea what we're asking about, and then we're stuck with an I don't know because we were too vague. So I guess your next task is to decide who's going to do Plan B with Carlos on those two unsolved problems, if that's where you want to start, uh, once you've made those unsolved problems as specific as possible, the next task is to decide, all right, who's on the hook? And, of course, designating somebody um, creates the possibility for follow-up. Uh, when there's follow-up, there's um, asking somebody how it went. Did they come to a solution? Did they have trouble? Did they need some help? Um, designating somebody to do Plan B is huge. By the way, not just in schools, in any other facility, or in a family. Good to be specific about who's going to do it. feels to me like, be, aside from being more specific about the unsolved problems, that might be where you're at in terms of getting started. Would you recommend that the person who does the empathy step is one of the people who has difficulty with that Unsolved problem? Great question. One that frequently comes up. Who, who should do Plan B with the student? Early on with the student, I'm recommending that it be whoever he's most likely to talk to. Because I'd like to get some early success going. And if the person he's having the trouble with is not especially proficient in Plan B, he's adverse to talking with that person, um, at the very least, I'd want somebody who he is comfortable talking to, leading Plan B, perhaps with the person he's less likely to talk to, sitting in the room so they can see what it's going to look like. Um, that would be my, that's my usual inclination. I'd rather get it going well first. Um, and to tell you the truth, from the other side of it, somebody who's never done Plan B before or somebody who's not had a great deal of success at it yet, don't know that we want to throw them to the wolves of Carlos 
without anybody helping them out, or at the very least without asking them what would be most comfortable for them as the best way to get this ball rolling. Um, so from both angles, both from the angle of the teacher who would be doing Plan B with Carlos but either hasn't had much experience or hasn't had much success or isn't very comfortable, and from the perspective of Carlos, who is he most likely to talk to, um, I'd rather try to plan for success if I can. Make sense? Yeah. Can I, this is Marisol. Dr. Green, when you would you envision the empathy stage, the defining the problem step and the invitation step in a in one of those sessions, like break it up? I mean, I've had some people ask me that, and my my response has been to to not rush through it and so to break it up what what is your sense as to like what would be the best approach for it i'm i'm number one i'm glad you asked and i'm glad that that's your instinct because you're really not ready to move on to the next step until you've completed the one before it and that empathy step as i've already said is quite an adventure you never know how long it's going to take. You never going to know. You never know when it is that you're going to be done. The last thing I would do is have people going into sort of I've got 15 minutes here, which which might be the reality, and saying, okay, I've got five minutes for the empathy step, five minutes for the find the problem step, and five minutes for the invitation. That is definitely not the way I would do it. I'd go into it thinking I'm going to do the empathy step, and let's see where I'm at after 15 minutes. If I'm really feeling like the empathy step is done before 15 minutes, I'll move on to the define the problem step. If I really feel like the define the problem step is done before the 15 minutes is up, I'll move on to the invitation. But since you really never know how long the empathy step in particular is going to take, you really don't know what that 15 minutes or however long you have, you don't know what it's going to look like. And that's okay. I'd rather... Here's the downside of rushing downside of thinking i got to get this done in 15 minutes because all i got is 15 minutes the downside is you rush through the empathy step and you really don't get a great sense of the kid's concern or perspective you rush through to define the problem step and you're really not sure if he has a great sense of your concern or your perspective the student and then you jump into the invitation brainstorming with no real clear sense about what problem you're trying to solve because you rush through the first two ingredients of plan b i'd rather take my time Sometimes the empathy step takes longer than the 15 minutes we have on day one. Sometimes it takes the 15 minutes of the next day, too. And my attitude is, good, I'd rather take my time uh, understanding the kid's concern or perspective and making on a given unsolved problem, making sure that he understands ours. I'd rather take my time on that and move into the invitation feeling like we really have a decent sense about what the concerns of both parties might be. I like that much better than being so cognizant of the amount of time that we have on a particular day that we end up in the invitation with only a very vague sense of the kids and the adults' concern or perspective and an unsolved problem that is highly unlikely to be solved under those conditions. So one of the key mantras here is take your time. Uh, Solving this problem in three days is likely to be much more effective and efficient than trying to solve the problem quickly in one. And by the way, that's often 
one of the big problems with traditional school discipline. It's so efficient. Uh, discipline referrals, we've got a sheet that we write it up on. It goes to the assistant principal or whoever the disciplinarian in the building is. The disciplinarian looks up what the kid did, sees where it is on the algorithm, and decides what's going to happen to the kid. That may feel efficient, but it ends up being extraordinarily inefficient because it's not working. We never get a sense about what's really going on with the kid. We have a very efficient system in place, but it's not solving any problems. So ultimately, not only is it ineffective, it's also inefficient. So, Dr. Green, this is um, I'm just processing a little bit what you were saying. So, for yep. example, like um, for myself, I'm a very reflective person. So if I have 15 minutes, but for myself, I've got enough information after five minutes and I need to digest, it's okay to say, okay, we're going to stop for today and we'll meet again after we've had some time to think about what we talked about then? Absolutely. I think that what your what your questions really speak to is the fact that collaborative problem solving is much more of a process than it is a technique. And so if you're deciding after five minutes that you really do have a clear sense of the student's concern or perspective on a given unsolved problem, and now you want to take some time to think about it, Fantastic. People do that in a process. People take time to think when they are engaged in the process of solving a problem collaboratively. When this is a technique, people are really not so even conscious of the fact that we have a process going on here, and they're really much more caught up in the steps and the technicalities of each step. And, um, you know, early on, many people who are new to Plan B are actually very caught up in the fact and the technicalities, because it's really all they have to hang their hat on. They're, they're thinking very technically, and that is common early on because people aren't really accustomed to the process yet or to the feel of it yet. The goal over time is for the <coughs> process of Plan B to become sort of second nature, for people to have what I would call their sea legs under them, and to feel like, okay, and I mentioned this during, I believe it was the last uh, educators panel. We were having a discussion about just sort of getting a feel for Plan B. And um, as football players say, uh, you know, when, when football players go from the college game to the pro game, they always say that the game is really much faster in the pro game. And so they, um, and so they, come to the pro game and they feel like the game has really speeded up on them. Then after a year or two in the pros, they start saying things like, the, the pro game has slowed down for me. I'm much less thinking now about the technicalities and much more thinking about what's going on in front of me. I have a better feel for this game. Plan B is no different. Um, if you need to take five minutes after doing the empathy step to give it some thought, I'm betting that the student is so blown away by the fact that people are actually interested in his concern or perspective that he'll um, he'll be patient with the process. Dr. Green, this is Marisol again. Thoughts as to dealing with staff that are not as knowledgeable with the process and the time factor <coughs> and that are getting frustrated and feeling like, well, the issue is not being addressed, and, and that's great. You're talking to the kid, but in the meantime, he's still talking out in my class. I'm just using that as an example. Um, 
you know, be, being that the goal is to be thorough, to really understand the unsolved problem so that we can ensure that in the invitation step we're really addressing appropriate solutions to the appropriate problem, how do we help, you know, that the staff that's really just getting impatient because the process is, is taking time? Well, it's an uh, interesting question, and I, it's got several answers to it. Um, for, one question is whether those are staff who really haven't been part of the collaborative problem-solving training that has been going on in your building, and therefore aren't don't have new lenses on yet and are wishing that something that isn't going to be solved overnight would be solved overnight. So one question is, are these primarily people who haven't, haven't even been involved in the process yet, and what they're getting impatient about is that they really know nothing about this alternative set of lenses and this alternative way about trying to go about doing things. It's also possible that people that these are people who have been involved in the process, but it's taking a while for people to get good at Plan B. By the way, that first issue speaks to the need, and we knew this was coming in your building, to broaden the effort. This happens with many schools that are implementing collaborative problem solving. When it comes time to move the effort beyond the core group and broaden it to include other people in the building. Uh, but as it relates to issue number one, that's often a very good time to invite those people into the core group so that they get a better feel for this new set of lenses and this new set of interventions. That said, the kid is still talking in class. And the big question is, has Plan B been done yet? If Plan B hasn't been done yet, then we have no reason to think that the student wouldn't still be speaking in class because we really haven't applied the intervention yet. Um, so those people are getting impatient, not be, not necessarily with plan B per se. They're getting impatient because they feel like nothing's being done. What do you, what's your sense about where the people who might be becoming impatient fall in that description? I think a little bit of both. Um, I think ultimately, you know, our, our school has, um, you know, a composition where there's just a lot of need. And so I think, you know, what I find is a sense of frustration that time is the enemy, you know, and, and that we have, you know, X amount of students that, you know, they want for a process to be working through with, and yet that process is taking time, you know, and so you're only getting to one or two kids. So, you know, I think some of the impatient adults, you know, are, you know, have read the book, um, you know, have, are, you know, have experience with the LSAP, meaning experience, like they've seen it, they know what its intention is. Um, the alternative lenses, you know, I think that's a process. Even those that have read the book, have the LSAP, know the process, I just think that that's a process. I think the alternative lenses is a process. Yeah, it's definitely a challenge. I mean, when you've got a classroom of 30 kids, 
and half of them need plan B, and you're only working with one, and the one who you're working with hasn't gotten to a point where they're totally able to cope and to implement their plan, it's very difficult to, you know, keep those lenses on and say, mm -hmm. we're working with them. It's not, you know, that they're trying to do this on purpose. They just don't have the skill. When you need to take care of the rest of your class, too, and make sure that they are able to learn with this other stuff going on. And, you know, it's, it's difficult when you do know all the work that's going into it to resort to a plan A type, we need this kid out. But there comes a point when you have to weigh, you know, and say, all right, the other 29 kids need to get through this lesson. And if little Bobby Joe or whoever is talking, 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 like what can we do to help them that's not going to necessarily make them go backwards, but, you know, we haven't gotten far enough with Plan B yet, and I need to help these other kids. Well, and this is the, this is what I would call the big hump where a school and different people in the school are slowly but surely starting to change their lenses, starting to appreciate the uh, futility of what they've been doing all along, but also recognizing just how many students could benefit from and who, students who need Plan B to be being done. Um, but also just starting to get good at Plan B. That's the hump. It's a big hump. And as you all are saying, it's a process because um, the process of changing lenses can be a slow one. The process of getting good at Plan B can be a slow one. Meanwhile, we have a lot of students who have needs. Many schools don't drop their existing discipline program completely while they're going through the process. And that sometimes, even though they realize that it's sort of futile, they um, get Plan B up and running while they're still doing what they used to do and then slowly but surely remove what they used to do as they get better at Plan B. Otherwise, they find themselves saying, well, we don't want to be doing Plan A anymore. We have too many students to be doing Plan B with. We're not good at Plan B yet. We still have people in the building who haven't changed their lenses and haven't even tried Plan B yet, let alone being proficient at it. Um, that leaves us only with only one option, Plan C, which is to basically drop everything or basically do nothing, which is not a desirable option. It's sort of a, then, then the C of Plan C stands for chaos, so a big part of the discussions of the core group are what are we going to do to try to spread this to the people who need it the most and the students who need it the most, people who may not be part of our core group yet? What are we going to do to help them out? And to what degree are we going to continue applying what we have always done while we're mindful of the fact that we don't want to be doing it forever what are we going to be doing in the meantime to try to maintain control of our classrooms? And it's actually a rather interesting balance um, because at the same time people are appreciating that there are lots of kids in the classroom who could use Plan B, 
they also are fully aware of the fact that they can't do them all at once. What are we going to do in the meantime? Many schools decide we're going to do what we used to do in the meantime, even though it's not what we want to be doing, while we're getting up to speed on this process. But it can sort of be agonizing and frustrating because, as I've said, people are recognizing, you know, that's not really what we want to be doing and we really don't think it's going to work. But all of these kids and all of these unsolved problems sort of have piled up over time. It's going to be hard to address them all in one fell swoop, especially while we're starting to get good at the whole process. You are at the hump, so congratulations for getting to the hump. <laughs> but I'm sorry that you're at the hump because it's often the hardest part. Mm-hmm. I would, but I would say that you're dealing with a few separate issues. Issue number one, we can't do Plan B with all of these kids in the beginning here. Who are our top priorities and what are we going to do with the rest? Issue number two, how are we going to start bringing more people into the loop here so that we are confident that over time everybody in the building is going to be able to do this? Mm-hmm. That's Those are the things that core groups grapple with. Mm-hmm. And it's, I would call it sort of make or break time because there are schools that have gotten to the hump. You know, it's sort of like, we got the lenses on. We realize that what we're doing now isn't working. We don't want to do it anymore, but we're not good yet at what we want to be doing instead. There are schools that throw in the towel at that point and say, too many kids need what we really ought to be doing. We clearly can't do this for all of them. We can't do this. Let's just stick with what we know and let's just stick with what we got. This is the hump. Dr. Green, at one point last year, you had suggested that if we were running into an issue with the particular student who we were working with in the classroom, that if we sort of like acknowledged with the student that we noticed something was going on and we tabled it for later, that that could be one strategy. And my question is, along those lines, have you ever come across a school in this transitory phase or hump phase, as you've called it, where maybe instead of having the traditional plan A type punishment, they could use something like an inside room where if a student has gone sort of off the handle and you want to table the issue for later, but they cannot be with, you know, within that class setting at the moment and something immediate, like immediate feedback needs to occur, where these kids could be sent down there and maybe there's some people who are better at plan B that are down in that room ready to handle like an instantaneous, like to, to settle the situation and maybe get a plan B started for that individual and where maybe they could finish work or do, so, do something where it's not traditional punishment, but. Yes, I've seen schools definitely do that. I, I've seen it take on a few different um, faces. In one case, it's still the assistant principal's office, but the pr- assistant principal isn't doing plan A. And by the way, we only have about 60 seconds left, so this will probably be the last answer for the day, but we've got next week, too, to continue the discussion if we want. Um, it's teachers in a building that I was doing in teaching collaborative problem-solving in said, all right, we got it, and we don't want to have plan A done with the student anymore, but if something pops, and we know we're supposed to be proactive, and we know we're supposed to be doing collaborative problem solving. 
But if something pops up in the classroom and we feel that a student needs can we send him to the assistant principal with a note that says, don't do the punishment, I just need a break? And the assistant principal, of course, said, absolutely. So these are the hard things that we need to grapple with. I'm delighted that we're on again next week because we can continue the discussion. Um, you are at the hump. I would probably recommend that in the classrooms in which there is a particularly large number of students who need help, we do an LSIP on each of them and decide who we're going to start with so that at least we feel like we have things in order, we know where we're starting, we know who we're holding off on, at least we're being systematic about it. That's probably as far Thanks to all our listeners. Thanks to our staff at Anytown High School. I'm looking forward to talking to you again next week. Hope you found this to be a useful program today. Talk to you next week.